Welcome to This Is Your Body, the podcast for students of the human body or for those who are just morbidly curious. My name is Dr. Bill. In this episode, our topic is sleep. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in this sleep of death what dreams may come. This is a quote from William Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1 to be exact. And you probably recall the first bit of the scene, which starts with the classic lines, to be or not to be. In Scene 1, Hamlet is alone, musing as to whether or not he should just give up and die to get away from his problems. Hamlet likens death to an immortal sleep. However, he's frightened that in this forever sleep, he'll dream when he's dead, and therein never receive any peace. While we don't fully understand the physiology of sleep, we have made a little progress since the Bard's time. And in this episode, we will consider the what, who, why, and how of sleep, as well as answer some of your burning questions. First, an obvious question. What is sleep? The answer can be pretty complex, but at a fundamental level, you can think of sleep as a period of quiescence or reduced physiological activity. That said, we do know that sleep is a complex, dynamic process that affects virtually every part of the body. Furthermore, you probably appreciate from firsthand experience that lack of sleep can have some very dire effects, certainly over the short term. We'll take a deeper dive into what your brain is doing while it sleeps, but for now, let's stick with that definition. As for who sleeps, well, aside from us hairless apes, every terrestrial animal that we know of sleeps, or rather has a period of physiological quiescence. And by terrestrial animals, I include critters such as flies and, of course, all the way up to humans. Behaviorally, we think of sleep as when someone closes his or her eyes loses consciousness, and becomes immobile. Breathing typically slows down, your muscles relax, and inputs to your brain are greatly diminished, including sight, smell, touch, pain, and hearing. However, there are at least two distinct types of sleep. REM, or rapid eye movement sleep, and NREM, or non-rapid eye movement sleep. And your body cycles between these two states while you're sleeping. During NREM, the skeletal muscles of your body are at their most relaxed. Whereas during REM sleep, in addition to your eye muscles making your eyes move around, your brain is also actively dreaming. In addition to the behavioral cues, we can also tell when a person is in REM or NREM sleep using the EEG or electroencephalogram. Think of EEGs as the sum of your brain's electrical activity, literally billions of neurons firing, as that energy is transmitted through the skin in your head. An EEG looks like squiggly lines, and you've probably all seen those. And when you're awake, those lines are rapid, but low in height or amplitude. These are called alpha waves. As you start to fall asleep, we would see what are called theta waves. They're a little slower. And as you enter deep sleep, these waves get slower still, but much higher. And these are called 
delta waves. Periodically, about five times a night, your brain jumps back to theta waves, the ones that we see during light sleep, but now you're really in REM sleep. And although your eyes may be darting around underneath your eyelids, your body's extremely relaxed and you're dreaming. After anywhere from five to 30 minutes, your brain cycles back to those delta waves, signifying deep sleep. Sleep physiologists say that most deep sleep occurs in the first half of the night, whereas most REM sleep occurs in the second half. This brings us up to the why of sleep. Shakespeare referred to sleep as nature's soft nurse, and turns out that's pretty apt. While I can't offer a single definitive answer about why we sleep, I can tell you a few theories. One is the energy conservation theory, which harkens back to our hunter-gatherer past. This theory holds that sleep started out as an adaptive mechanism to conserve energy during the hours when we couldn't hunt effectively, namely during the night. Another theory is that sleep is restorative. That is, this reduced period of activity allows the body to repair and replenish tissues. We know that the body uses up sources of energy such as glycogen during the day as a consequence of metabolic activity. At night, some energy-requiring aspects of metabolism decrease, slowing the rate of energy expenditure by our bodies. However, other metabolic activities actually increase. Proteins, which are the building blocks of all tissues and organs, are synthesized or made at a greater rate at night, allowing the body to build and repair muscles and bones. Hormones, such as human growth hormone and testosterone, also increase at night. Supporting this theory is some pretty good evidence that sleep is important for athletic performance and recovery. Most coaches encourage athletes to get plenty of sleep. But don't just take my word for it. Here's Rod DeHaven, former U.S. men's Olympic marathon champion and track coach at South Dakota State University. Hello, Coach DeHaven. Welcome, and thank you for being on the podcast. My burning question for you is, how important is sleep to the athletes you coach? Well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. And as a collegiate endurance coach for the last 16 years, I've been, unfortunately, firsthand witness to some of the negative effects of sleep deprivation, oftentimes related to academics, social obligations, dietary choices, electronic interference has become more prevalent of late. And, and certainly we remind our student athletes that the, the documented research of exercise science in a lot of endurance type events, consistent positive sleep can potentially relate an improvement of up to three to four percent performance, which take just even a 10 minutes endurance race. That is, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, the difference between tears and joys, unfortunately. We do encourage our athletes to do the following, you know, establishing a, be a bedtime and an awake time. Try and discourage electronic use 30 minutes prior to uh, trying to uh, go to sleep. Uh, establish uh, time management skills related to academics that allow them to be more consistent with their sleep. And then you know, reminding them of, of other bits of science, you know, one, you know, most of them can relate to glycogen and, you know, the energy stores related to glycogen. And that that can actually increase with uh, you know, consistent regular sleep. So we do remind them of those things. Um, you know how effective that is uh, is definitely debatable. 
Okay, great. Well, that's really consistent with some of the other things we've been talking about in the podcast. Thanks very much for your time, and thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Bill. That was former Olympian and track coach, Mr. Rod DeHaven. Yet another theory regarding why we sleep is that it fosters brain development, which some scientists refer to as the brain plasticity theory. Consider, if you will, that infants spend upwards of 14 hours per day sleeping. During sleep, infant brains are actually busiest building connections between the right and left sides of the brain, and more than 1 million neural connections per hour are made within the first three years of life. To further underscore the importance of sleep for brain development, several studies have shown that children under the age of three who sleep less than 10 hours per night are more likely to have language and reading problems, as well as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now for the how of sleep. And to talk about how, it's probably good to review a few brain basics. So before we take a deeper dive, let's start with some of the structures in the brain involved in sleep and wakefulness, starting with the appropriately named brainstem, because it's located at the base of the brain. This actually consists of three different structures, the pons, the medulla, and the midbrain. For simplicity, we will spend more time on the pons and the neurochemicals it produces. Next up, quite literally, is the hypothalamus. This is a structure about the size of a peanut that's deep in the center of the brain, which has regions that either regulate sleep or arousal. One specific structure called the SCN, or suprachiasmatic nucleus, gathers information about light exposure from the eyes. Another point of interest, a little above the hypothalamus and to the rear, is the pineal gland, which receives signals from the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, and makes the hormone melatonin. We'll talk about melatonin a little bit later. Next on our journey towards the top of the brain is the thalamus. Like the pineal, the thalamus lies between the two large cerebral hemispheres. And the role of the thalamus is mainly as a great relay station to the cerebral cortex, which is the part of the brain that processes and interprets information. I know that's a lot of detail. And what we'd really like to know is how do these systems work to regulate sleeping and waking? I'd like you to imagine, if you will, an on-off switch in the shape of a seesaw. On one side, the on switch, is the pons. And on the off side is something called the VLPO, or the ventrolateral preoptic nucleus. So let's start with the on side involving the pons. Brain cells in the pons produce the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which serves to wake up circuits in the thalamus. Remember, the thalamus is that relay. Once we give the thalamus a figurative shake, it produces chemicals called orexins. Parts of the hypothalamus also get into the act, making other chemicals such as serotonin, norepinephrine, histamine, and dopamine, which together prime the cerebral cortex, remember the thinking part of your brain, to fully wake up. In my house, I think of the pons as being my alarm clock and the thalamus being like me. The pons, or alarm clock, wakes me, also known as the thalamus, up. And what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to make coffee. And coffee's 
that magic witch's brew that wakes up the rest of the house or the brain. So let's quickly recap. The wake-up switch, if you will, is in the pons. The sleep switch is a specific part of the hypothalamus called the VLPO. Let's imagine the day wears on. The body uses up more and more energy in the form of ATP and, well, you start to get tired. As we use up more ATP, it breaks down into a molecule called adenosine, which in turn activates, wait for it, the VLPO. Now we're starting to turn the off switch on. And the VLPO produces neurohormones such as GABA and galanine. What do they do? They inhibit the pons. I previously mentioned the pineal gland, which makes melatonin. What is the connection to sleep? Well, when our surroundings are dark, the pineal gland makes more melatonin, which further activates the SCN. You can think of melatonin, adenine, GABA, and galanine as being messengers of sleep, whereas acetylcholine, norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine are part of the alarm clock. We've talked about the what, who, why, and how of sleep. Now it's time for a few burning questions. First up, what happens when you're sleep deprived? Sleep deprivation can refer to either a lack of the length or quality of sleep. Here's one example of a scientific study on sleep deprivation. At the Michigan State University Sleep and Learning Lab, researchers Michelle Stepan, Eric Altman, and Kimberly Finn recruited 138 subjects. 77 stayed awake all night, 61 went home to sleep. They then had the test subjects complete tasks, which included placekeeping exercises, that is, an activity during which they had to complete a series of steps without losing their places, as well as exercises measuring attention span. The results, probably not surprising, but they're really scary. Sleep-deprived people had double the number of placekeeping errors and triple the number of lapses in attention. Why is this scary? Think about the implications for an emergency room doctor who's been up all night. A sick or injured patient appears who requires a complicated multi-step procedure to be performed. And what about a pilot landing an aircraft or even an individual behind the wheel of a car? I probably don't have to convince you that bad things can and do happen when you're sleep deprived. And keep in mind, I haven't mentioned any of the studies on extended sleep deprivation. And what does that look like? Well, after 24 hours of no sleep, as well as having a decreased attention span and an inability to place keep very well, you would by now be getting a tad irritable and have reduced coordination. If I kept you up for another 12 hours, or a total of 36 hours without sleep, you would start to have what we call little microsleeps, which are light sleeps lasting about 30 seconds or so in duration. Your memory, of course, would be even worse off, and you'd start to see impairments in your ability to fight off an infection. By 48 hours, more microsleeps, you'd probably also start to see little green men or hallucinate. After 72 hours, well, let's just say you probably don't want to see yourself in the mirror. In fact, you probably wouldn't recognize yourself. And after four days or 96 hours, you really wouldn't be behaving like you. Another question has to do with makeup sleeps. I think all of us have gone through extremely busy patches at work or school and thought, uh, it's okay, I could catch up on the weekend. But can you? I'm going to spoil the suspense. The answer is 
Nope. Yet nine. Absolutely not. How do I know this? Well, let me tell you about another interesting study. This one was done at the University of Colorado Sleep Center. So the researchers there took three groups of people. Group one were allowed to sleep as much as nine hours per day for nine days. Group two was allowed only five hours of sleep for nine days. Group three, they got no more than five hours of sleep for five days, were allowed a two-day recovery where they could sleep up to nine hours. Then they went back to five hours of sleep for two more days. The researchers measured eating patterns, weight gain, blood sugar, and insulin sensitivity, to name a few parameters. As you probably expect, there were no changes in any of the parameters for the well-slept group. The bad news? Whether you were allowed two days of sleep recovery or not, both groups two and three showed weight gain, decreased insulin sensitivity, and changes in snacking pattern. Bummer. And more bad news? Chronic sleep deprivation increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. It also increases the amount of Alzheimer's protein in the brain, as well as increasing the risk of atherosclerosis and immune dysfunction. Double, no, quadruple bummer. I hate being such a downer, but there is a silver lining. By the simple act of sleeping, at least sleeping well, it is possible to reduce some of those risk factors. I've also been asked whether it's true that, as people age, they need less sleep. Well, it is true that people do sleep less as they age, and they tend to nap more. I'm going to sound like a nihilist. We need as much sleep as ever. Older folks like me get tired more easily, and as I mentioned, we nap more frequently. I love my naps. But we also take longer to recover from changes in sleep cycle. If you've had good sleep before listening to this podcast, you might remember the SCN, or suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's part of the brain that takes in light information and stimulates the VLPO, or sleep center of the hypothalamus. Turns out, the SCN ages just as we age and starts to lose more and more neurons. What this means is that sleep circuitry in our brain just stops working as well. All this brings me around to my favorite beverage, coffee. Mmm, coffee. For all of you procrastinating, last-minute, late-night worshippers of that magic bean, and I count myself as a member of your tribe, have you ever wondered exactly how caffeine keeps us awake? For the answer to that, we need to revisit some of the physiology we've been talking about. Remember adenosine? That molecule that activates the VLPO, the sleep center of the hypothalamus? Turns out that caffeine, and theophylline, of which there is lots in tea, block or antagonize the adenosine receptor. Bottom line, caffeine prevents the activation of the sleep circuit. I do so love it when a plan comes together. And so, with that, we've come to the end of our somnambulistic sojourn. Did I activate your pawns? Or did I turn on your VLPO? Whichever the case, I wish all of you, dear listeners, sweet rims. Thank you.